At its very core, drug science must remain independent. This means we don't accept sponsorships. It's with the support of the drug science community we're able to do this and make the podcast in the first place. If you're able to become a drug science community member and support the show, you too will be supporting the dissemination of evidence-based drug policies. Without you, none of this would be possible. For anybody interested, there's a link in the show notes. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the Drug Science Podcast with me, David Nutt. Here we're bringing together experts and activists for a rational, honest and informed conversation about drugs. So a very warm welcome to the Drug Science Podcast with me, Joe Neal and Hannah Thurger. And today we have a guest from over, over the pond, as they say, and he's speaking to us from Florida. And he is Dustin Robinson, who is a Florida University triple gator in accounting and law. Now, I guess he'll tell us about that because that's something, a triple gator isn't something we have in, in unis here. <laughs> I think it's three degrees, but I really like, that's a, such a great term. I really, that's so cool. So Dustin is a, a lawyer and a certified public accountant. And Dustin, I have to say, we are scientists. So, you know, our knowledge of law and accountancy is very limited. So we'll be going quite gently on that. But he now, where he was with Deloitte's, huge accountancy firm, and now he works exclusively in the cannabis and psychedelic space. So we're really keen to know how, how that all happened. He is a founding partner of Mr. Cannabis Law and a co-founder of Mr. Psychedelics Law. I think those are those are really cool names. He also is a co-founder of ITER Investments, and that's a venture capital firm. And actually, Hannah and I are not exactly sure what a venture capital does, so it'd be quite good to hear. And that is funding, I think, psychedelics, the psychedelics industry. And it'd be interesting, Dustin, to hear your views on, you know, the huge investment that was, and, and now it seems to be slowing down. It'd be interesting to know what's going on there. Yeah, so that's the introduction and a very warm welcome to you, Dustin. We're expecting to learn a lot. But I think we'd like to start by talking about your, your background, you know, and how you, you went from Deloitte's to working in with these illegal, here anyway, med drugs as medicines. Absolutely. Well, first off, thank you. Thank you for having me. And yeah, I respect you scientists as well. I'll try to stay in my domain as an accounting and legal guy and let you guys cover a lot of the science stuff. I know enough to be dangerous, but that's that's where I'm limited. So yeah, my you know I started off, uh, I, I got my, my master's in accounting, my CPA, and my law degree, and my real estate license. But before law school, I worked at Deloitte. After law school, I worked at Holland and Knight. Kind of did the big accounting, big law thing. I very much my whole life kind of did what society told me, you know, go to accounting school, go to law school, work at the big firms, very much just assume the social constructs around me were the correct constructs. And it served me well early on. But as I got later on in my career, I started questioning a lot of those social constructs. And I ended up leaving Deloitte to run, help run a manufacturing company that we grew to about 50 million in revenue. I sold that about seven years ago. And for that exit, I, I kind of decided to take a year off to figure out my next move. I wasn't really intending on getting back into law. I'd kind of been entrepreneurial for the seven years prior to that. But in that one year off, I ran into some friends in the cannabis industry. I was not a big cannabis user advocate. You know, a lot of everyone kind of comes to this industry in a different way. Some people 
come on the advocacy side. I really got pulled in just because some of my friends had a license. They needed help structuring a commercial transaction and I helped them structure it. I got a referral, did another deal. And before I knew it, I had kind of had a niche doing complex commercial transactions within the cannabis space. So I launched my law firm about four or five years ago, really focused on cannabis, but my law firm also represents a lot of doctors. So about I would say three and a half, four years ago, early 2019, a lot of the doctors I represent started reaching out about getting involved in psychedelics. And I was quite surprised. I I didn't know much about psychedelics. I'd actually never tried a psychedelic at that time. So went the first, I'm 38 years, years old. I went my first 34 years of life, never trying them once again, because I really kind of fed into the social constructs around me. I actually kind of carried that stigma with me when they reached out. I the, the stigma fired up in my brain. I was like, well, you guys are crazy. What are you talking about? But those doctors shared some of the research. So I spent about two, two to three months, you know, just kind of coming through the research they shared. Some of it was out of Imperial College of London, some of it NYU, Yale, a lot of really highly esteemed institutions were doing, were coming out with some really strong research. And I was really surprised at what I was reading. So I started, you know, investing in some deals personally, um, started syndicating some deals, started representing those doctors, launching ketamine clinics, ketamine telehealth companies, setting up research collaborations. And then I had my own psychedelic experience and it just validated all the research I was reading, kind of, you know, experiencing that expansion of consciousness and what these compounds could potentially do for mental and behavioral health. So that really, in a way, kind of it angered me in a sense, just because, you know, I consider myself a relatively intelligent human being. And for the first 34 years of my life, I was somewhat duped by these social constructs and the stigma. And so experiencing these compounds, recognizing that it was the complete opposite of what society was telling me, I'd always believed they turn your brain into mush. And it was quite the opposite. You know, it felt all my my brain was fired up. I, I felt that neuroplasticity, parts of the brain talking to one another. Everything I had been reading in the research, I got to experience myself and launched my nonprofit, which is Mr. Psychedelic Law. At the end of 2019, we were very involved in the legal reform side. But I recognized that in order for the industry to progress, I could go to the top of the mountain and advocate all I want. We really needed capital. And my nonprofit was fully self-funded by, by myself. I didn't raise any outside capital So decided to launch my venture capital fund. I saw that that was what the industry really needed. We needed capital going into the research. So yeah, so we raised some funds. We started investing at this point. We've invested in 18 companies and we'll likely be launching our next fund sometime towards the end of this year. Great. Oh yeah, and you're absolutely right about the stigma has been horrendous with psychedelics. I think probably worse than with cannabis and people having this misconception that you will lose your mind and, and do things and you'll kind of lose control, which, of course, none of this is true. And, you know, your own psychedelic experience, was that just because you're working in, in this industry and you felt it was important to understand it better from a personal perspective? Yeah, there were a couple of factors going on there. Number one was, yes, I was representing all these different doctors and, and companies, and, and they obviously were, you know, I became very close with them, started learning, and they're like, Dustin, you're you're now like our, our go-to guy. And, you know, I became kind of the go-to lawyer, especially in the state of Florida, but my law firm has offices in several states. So we we're representing companies all over the U.S., and they were like, you, you got to try these compounds. So that was kind of one factor was the clients kind of telling me like, I got to try it. But the second was just, you know, reading the research and just curiosity. I was like, this is 
incredible what I'm reading. I'd, I'd like to experience it myself, especially because I was in, starting to invest in the space. You know, if you're investing in a ice cream company, you want to taste the ice cream, make sure it tastes good. And, you know, so I didn't want to be investing and representing clients and not really know what it's all about. So yeah, that that's kind of what inspired me. My first experience was actually in a, a doctor's office. I did a ketamine treatment with a doctor that I represent. And then my second experience was with my life coach. We we had a psilocybin experience. And then after that, I've, I've been on quite a bit of different journeys. Interesting. So in terms of the investment in a particular psychedelic, do you see psilocybin as being, you know, the one or different, you know, different psychedelics for different illnesses, different people? Has that come into the the investment space? I guess it does. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've we've developed a thesis around all different psychedelic compounds. We have different beliefs around different compounds for different indications and and not only just the compound but also the dosage. You know, we we believe maybe you know, higher doses might be better for certain indications, whereas lower doses might might be more appropriate for diff- other indications. But then, you know, right now what's exciting and, and what we're looking a lot into is novel psychedelic compounds. I mean, we're, we're all familiar with kind of these, what we call the first generation of psychedelic molecules, the LSD, MDMA, psilocybin, DMT, 5-MeO. You know, that's like what we call first generation psychedelics. Second generation psychedelics is really, we define that as really taking those first generation psychedelic compounds and changing them just a bit, creating analogs on those compounds. So for example, with psilocybin, reducing the length of the trip or speeding up the onset. And then the third generation is just completely novel compounds, which we're very excited about. These psychedelic compounds, the research is showing, you know, they hit different serotonin receptors. And, you know, while LSD and MDMA are unbelievable compounds, they were invented in a lab. You know, a lot of people, they focus on psilocybin comes from nature. But a lot of that research was kind of stymied back in the 70s when here in the U.S. it was put as a Schedule One substance in the Controlled Substances Act. And so, you know, really these these lab-created psychedelic compounds like LSD and MDMA are incredible compounds, and there's no reason we can't have hundreds of different ones that hit different serotonin receptors and have different effects. So we're, we've invested in several companies that are doing a lot of really interesting research on the serotonin receptors and developing novel psychedelic molecules. And another area we're very interested in is also the short-acting psychedelics like DMT and 5-MeO, as well as shortening some of the longer acting psychedelics like MDMA, LSD, and psilocybin. So I think in the therapeutic setting, if you could get this down to a shorter period of time, we find that to be incredibly interesting, assuming you could keep equal or better efficacy in that shorter duration experience. Well, I mean, there have been some very good results from small pharma. Intravenous DMT, it's a much, much shorter experience. And the results on a small depression trial, but they have been extraordinarily good. We They were presented last week at the, meeting, the conference I was at. Yeah, and I can see that, you know, that makes sense if you can have as profound a psychedelic experience, as good a healing experience in a shorter space of time. You know, economically and for us trying to bring it into the NHS, that will, you know, be more practical than having somebody in the clinic all day long you know, with health practitioners. But, you know, this developing novel psychedelics, is that all around patenting issues, do you think? 
No, you know, look, I mean, of course, there, there, there is a real challenge in this industry around patents. You can't patent any of those first generation molecules there. You know, in order to have a compound, there needs to be novelty and, and utility. You have to be creating something new. Um, and certainly, you know, these first generation psychedelic compounds have been around for decades, even centuries. So you can't really patent those. So there is, to some extent, companies are trying to manipulate the molecule to get some IP around it, but also at the end of the day, they're, these, these compounds aren't perfect, right? And they need to be researched. So if the research is showing that certain serotonin, you know, if, if we want to play around with the different serotonin receptors that are being hit, the research, we, we're very careful. We don't really, we invest in companies where they have, they're truly inventive. They're, they're creating something new. We're not really looking at companies that are just trying to manipulate the molecule to, you know, basically get some patent protection. But even, you know, one area that's become increasingly interesting to us that I was quite skeptical about is some of the non-hallucinogenic um, psychedelics. I actually don't even like using the word hallucinogenic because I, I don't necessarily think these compounds are hallucinogenic. I think they're actually opening you up to more reality and you're observing more reality. So I, I actually don't like that word. But these compounds that are being called non-hallucinogenic psychedelics and, and blocking that 5-HT2A receptor are very interesting that, that if you're able to get some of the same physiological benefits, some of that neuroplasticity without actually having that psychedelic effect, it's interesting. There still needs to be a lot of research. We're interested, but we're very, we're, we're skeptically interested in it. We still, the research still hasn't shown. We've talked to experts that have a very strong belief that you need that subjective experience of, of having the hallucination. We've talked to other experts that think perhaps you don't need it, or maybe you need it for certain indications, but not other indications. So yeah, look, I think there's a lot of really interesting innovation going on. And yes, that, that helps with IP, but it also helps push the industry forward. Yeah, maybe these psychoplastogens can be more helpful than other indications such as asthma or other inflammatory conditions, which I think it's important to highlight the difference between psychiatric conditions and in other conditions where these might offer some other benefit. Yeah, agree, agree entirely. Some of these like neuroinflammatory conditions and, and neurodegenerative diseases we think, you know, could be helpful. I think for things like, uh, you know, treatment resistant depression or PTSD, things that are like very, you know, you, you kind of need your brain to be shake, shaken up and, and reset. I think for those, you, you really are going to need that subjective experience as well. But it, exactly as you put it, certain indications, perhaps you don't need that experience. Yeah. And so some of the companies you've been working with, um, how much of a focus have they got on the therapeutic component? Yeah. So, you know, almost all of the biotech companies right now are focused on psycho-assisted psychedelic therapy. So it's even, even if it's, you know, a biotech company doing drug development, they generally do have some sort of therapeutic protocol. We've invested in a company Fluence, which has done, you know, they do a lot of the training, but they also help build protocols on the therapy side. So they really get hired by some of these biotech companies to develop that therapeutic protocol, for example, Beckley SciTech, one of our companies uh, has used Fluence, Clairvoyant, which is another one of our portfolio companies used Fluence. And now there's also very interesting research and a lot of debate among the experts is on how much therapy is really needed. I think there's no doubt that the more therapy you have, the better 
the outcome. I think even without psychedelics, like therapy is a good thing, right? It's good to, to open yourself up and, and talk to somebody. I think therapy is a very good, uh, very important component. However, with the more therapy you provide, the most more cost prohibitive it becomes. So, you know, if we could get these approved under a more mild therapeutic setting, that would be ideal. Still advocating for people to continue therapy and try to open themselves up. But, you know, there's a little bit of a debate, you know, on even the, the de definition of therapy, because there's this misconception that during the experience, like there's talk therapy going on. And I know in the MAPS MDMA trial, they, they talk a lot about everyone has their own inner healer. And the, the people who are there, the two, two people that are required to be in the room during the MDMA experience for the MAPS trial are really not there to guide the session. They're there to really create guardrails. They're there if someone wants to talk, but really the idea is that the person is their own inner healer. But certainly on the integration side afterwards, I, I do think having the proper support and people to talk to is, is an important aspect. I think, though, as well, some people will need a lot of therapy, a lot of integration, and other people may just not need so much at all. And once again, that, that might come to the indication as well. For example, you know, another thing that's being researched is the durability of these compounds. In the COMPASS study, there was kind of a fall-off. You know, the first six weeks, people feel better, but there's a bit of a fall-off. So do you need multiple sessions and things of that nature? So there's all these open questions, but I do think on the integration, but, but like, even for, you know, we look at different indications like end of life demoralization or end of life depression for those particular conditions, perhaps just one psychedelic experience is sufficient, right? You're, you're kind of gaining new meaning on what death really is. Right. And so sometimes that one experience for someone with end of life might be sufficient. Whereas someone who's suffering with treatment resistant depression in my opinion, I don't think just one session is going to cure them of that TRD. They'll likely need multiple sessions. So there's so many different factors from what the indication is, the demographics we're dealing with, what compounds we're using, the dosage. There's just so many assets and we, there's still so much we need to learn, which is why I thought it was so important to start deploying capital into the research around psychedelics. Yeah. So back to the money, it sort of seems that there's been a bit of a burst of the bubble. There was a huge amount of investment. We saw Hannah do a lot of companies in this space that just aren't there anymore. Or so is that you know, from your you're the expert on the on the finance and the investment, has that reduced? Oh yeah, there's been an extreme decline in the amount of capital that has gone into the industry, which is unfortunate because really, you know, to start these trials, you know, do a phase one trial, sometimes maybe you need five to 10 million, but inevitably you're going to have to go to phase two, phase three, and you start needing to raise 30, 50 million. So that capital that came in 2021, there was a lot of capital that you know really got those trials off the ground and so the expectation was 22 23 more capital will come in to you know finance the larger trials and the exact opposite happened and as a result a lot of these companies are in some pretty dire situations and, and you know that starts on the drug development side but it does trickle down to other companies in the value chain whether it be you know the suppliers of the api like Cygen, We've invested in Cygen, they, you know, supply, they act the pharmaceutical ingredients to the drug development companies. But as the drug development companies don't have the capital to push forward their research, they can't afford to, you know, buy 
active pharmaceutical ingredients from Cygen. So we've seen it really trickle down through the entire industry, this, uh, this capital. But I think it's important to note that this is really a macroeconomic situation. There's just less capital being deployed with the war in Ukraine, in- increase in interest rates. There's so many different factors going on. Um, you know, you could invest in, in a treasury bill right now and get an incredible interest rate. So people are very risk off right now. They're not investing in emerging industries. So as a result, we expect, you know, you, you mentioned there's been some companies that have gone under, there's been some strategic deals, and we expect a lot more of that. I think over the next six to 12 months, you know, companies, the, the companies that aren't able to raise the capital are going to either go out or, or going to have to do some sort of strategic relationship with one of the companies that are well-financed. Um, and in the end, what we'll be left with is I think there, we could see as much as 80, 85% of the companies going out. So let's say there's 400 real psychedelic companies, you're kind of left with around 40 companies that, that will be the survivors. But those survivors, we think, have incredible potential. Um, so that's really kind of what our, our fund two is focused on is identifying that top 20%, you know, identifying those 40 companies and will likely deploy capital into like 10 to 12 of them, the ones that we really think have the highest potential. Yeah. And do you see big pharma coming into this space? You know, some of the really big players like Pfizer or Roche or some Takeda, say. Yeah, well, I'll tell you, they're all picking around. We've had multiple conversations with a lot of big pharma companies, you know, a lot of them under NDA on a lot of this stuff. So can't go too deep in, but You'd be surprised. A lot of these companies, at the very least, and even the big biotech funds that are not investing in the space, we, we really need to get those big biotech funds involved. Like psychedelic funds, like like mine, you know, we have a little under thirty million under management. Most of the psychedelic funds are less than that, maybe a little bit more than that. The reality is that's not very much capital when it comes to an investment fund. So some of these big biotech funds have billions of dollars under management. So. You know, we've had a lot of discussions with some of these bigger biotech funds and, you know, some of the main issues they have around the industry are number one, IP, you know, is IP position strong? And number two, what is the therapeutic model? We still don't really know how is this going to work out with MAPS. MAPS is going to be a really important test case for the entire industry, which is why we're doing everything we can to support MAPS. We, we invested in they had a rev share SBV that we invested in to support them and we're very close with their team and doing everything we can because I really believe MAPS is breaking down a lot of the barriers that these other companies will be the beneficiaries of. So it's important. I think everyone in the industry should do whatever they can to support what MAPS is doing to ensure its success. For sure. And it feels like that will be the first licensed medicine. Yeah, we're expecting sometime in the first half of 2024. They've already finished all their trials, got incredible results. So hopefully early 2024, we'll see MDMA approved and then the real work begins. How do, <laughs> yeah. how do we commercialize oh, it? Wow. How, yeah, how do we train how do we train therapists? How do we set up the infrastructure and you know, there's a lot of really interesting work going on right now from, you know, conversations with insurance companies to I'm involved with the Healing REIT, which is a real estate investment fund that's funding some of the, the clinics that will be opening up uh, to support MAPS's MDMA. So a lot needs to happen, and it really needs to be kind of a, a joint effort within the, the industry to ensure this is a success. And do you think we can learn maybe from the ketamine industry? 
you know, there'll be mistakes made there. Have there come, will that help us? Absolutely. I mean, I, I got involved in the industry. Really, ketamine was my first exposure. We, we helped launch multiple ketamine clinics, ketamine telehealth companies, and we're, we're still very involved on the, on the ketamine side. And, you know, I think in the beginning, there was kind of this assumption that these were going to be just like cash cows, these ketamine clinics, but they're, they're not. You know, you got to run them. They're a clinic and you got to run them well. You got to figure out the right model where you could actually make profit. But I would say a, a vast majority of these ketamine clinics are currently not profitable. Right. And that's just not sustainable. You know, you need to build a profitable model. So we've my law firm represents dozens of ketamine clinics. My investment fund has diligenced do- dozens of ketamine clinics. So we kind of have a thesis around what we what we think works and, and what we think does not work at these ketamine clinics. But there is going to be one big distinction, though, of ketamine versus MDMA is the length of time of MDMA. And right now, there are really no regulations since ketamine is being used off label. There's really no no regulations on how much support is required, how many people need to be in the room. Whereas with MAPS, you know, it's very specific. There's a lot of handholding, a lot of therapy involved. Two people need to be in the room during the administration of, of, of the MDMA. So while there's things we could certainly learn from the ketamine side of things, and I think in some ways ketamine has broken down some barriers, there's also a lot of differences that we need to keep in mind as we roll, roll out MDMA. And for us, we, d- we want this to be available on our National Health Service. So we don't want this to be a profit. You know, we, we want this to be available for everybody and not to be private. So the UK perspective is how do we integrate it into our current healthcare system and really thinking how do you build that into the infrastructure that we already have? I mean, that's going to be the, the million dollar question, really. And that'll be we have the question now of approvals, which we know is likely, but it's the access question, really. And how are you thinking that industry can support the, the plans for reimbursement in the States? Yeah, well, the, you know, I mentioned the insurance conversations are, are getting started and, you know, they are the U.S. just came out with a CBT code for psychedelic therapy, which is which is great news. So um, at least we have that moving. I think it's going to take some time for insurance to get on board. I know MAPS is doing all sorts of economic analyses trying to demonstrate that even though this therapy will be quite expensive for the insurance companies in the long term, hopefully they're getting people with PTSD off their other meds, potentially permanently. And so when you kind of look at the long term, I think there's going to be tremendous cost savings, especially also just with like the indirect costs, the the financial burden of people being out of work for PTSD. You know, there's all these kind of non, non-monetary indirect costs to society of these people having these various conditions. So I think it's going to take a lot of work, a lot of advocacy. I mean, it's great that we have groups like, you know, you guys that are that are pushing forward that conversation. But unfortunately, I think it will take quite a bit of time. So, you know, once again, that's why it's important that we figure out, you know, how much therapy is really needed. Obviously, we more therapy, the better outcome. But at the same time, is there a way for us to do this at a lower cost? Do two people really need to be in the room? You know, I think in many respects, that's that's an overkill and quite expensive itself. So there's certain things, but I, I also think that, you know, when you, you know, this is such a, a new thing. And sometimes when you're doing something new, it's better to put up more guardrails than less guardrails. 
So I think maps really, you know, they had to appease the FDA. So there's a lot of guardrails. But I think the expectation is as they develop more data and more support of their therapy, you know, two years out, when this is all going well, hopefully they could start peeling back some of those different guardrails to make this more affordable and provide broader access. And I guess it's likely to be PTSD. That will be the main indication for MDMA to begin with. Yes. Yeah. PTSD is what it's being approved for. There is discussion about off-label use. Off-label use is just uh, prescribing an approved compound for an indication that it was not approved for, which is ketamine is approved as an anesthetic, but it's being prescribed for various mental and behavioral health indications. So yeah, in the beginning, it'll be very focused on PTSD, but there's so much, you know, comorbidity among all these different indications that, you know, quite honestly, I think, you know, Physicians will find ways to find that people are, you know, maybe they have addiction, but there's probably some trauma that maybe is causing that addiction, or maybe they have depression, but maybe there's some trauma that's causing that depression. So there's so much comorbidity that I think you're going to see that there's going to be a lot of potential people that could be helped by the by MDMA. So you are working hard to, to change the law in Florida. I mean, we're kind of looking to you because you know, much as we would like to change the laws around psychedelics and actually other illegal drugs, you know, that nothing really is happening in the UK. So we are really looking to see what's going on with you and, of course, Australia. But can you just tell us what what is going on in Florida compared to Oregon and Colorado, perhaps? Well, I'll start with kind of a a broader overview. So what we've been talking about thus far is kind of like the pharmaceutical use of psychedelics. So in the U.S., that's mainly regulated by the FDA. Also, the DEA has some role in that as well, just from a scheduling perspective. And so there's been some federal legal reform that's been proposed just recently. We had the Breakthrough Therapies Act, which would do various things, but among others, it would it would reschedule compounds that get breakthrough therapy status with the FDA. So for example, psilocybin and MDMA, even though they're not approved yet, they did receive breakthrough therapy in like 2018, 2019, I think it is. So under this statute, they would have been rescheduled um, as Schedule 2 for that breakthrough therapy status. So there's stuff going on at a federal level, legal reform. But then in the U.S. at a state level, we have um, states like Oregon and Colorado that have legalized, which is creating a commercial framework. Then we have other states that have decriminalized, um, which is just really allowing possession and use, making it the lowest priority for enforcement. It's not a legalized use. But it's important to note that in those states, Colorado, Oregon, any states, any states or cities doing de- decriminalization in the U.S., federal law is still supreme to state and city. So it's still technically illegal activity. So you kind of run into the situation you have in can- with cannabis where you have all these state legal frameworks, but it's still federally illegal, which causes all sorts of issues with banking, taxes, insurance, things of that nature. So a lot of challenges are ahead for that particular framework. That's why we think the best route is if we could do it under this pharmaceutical pathway, you know, that's when you get insurance coverage. That's when you don't run into the tax issues. It's, it's much cleaner, but we are big proponents of, of what, what's happening at city and state levels. I think we need to be very careful with what's, what's happening there. We don't want to get ahead of ourselves and make the same mistakes we made in the 60s where 
maybe some of these compounds were not being used responsibly and maybe there wasn't enough guardrails. But then in Florida, we, we filed a bill back in, I think it was 2020, that was very similar to the Oregon bill. And it was really creating a legalized framework here in Florida. You know, in the U.S., you have some states that are very conservative, some that are very liberal. Florida tends to be a very conservative state. So Oregon and Colorado, very liberal. I knew when I filed that bill, there was no chance of it getting passed in Florida. But it was really a messaging bill to get the conversation started. And I was absolutely shocked at how much support we got. I'm still having conversations with legislators, people in, you know, our state, our, our capital, Tallahassee, about changing laws around it. So it really was a messaging bill and to get the conversation started. And and since then we've we've put together a couple different bills scaling back. That first bill was like we're asking for everything because we want them to see where we want to go with this. But now we're scaling back and we're starting to look at doing more like research bills. So a lot of the states have passed bills that we're not not necessarily commercializing, not even decriminalizing, but appropriating funds to finance research. Because at the end of the day, whether you're a conservative or you're a liberal or wherever you fall on the political spectrum, no one should really be opposed to research. Like that's one thing like society should be open to is research, especially when we're seeing stuff at an FDA level where these compounds are showing so much promise. Objective research. This is no longer anecdotal. This is objective research. So I think states are putting themselves behind if they do not adopt some sort of uh, appropriation bill to, to start researching. And then the other thing you're seeing in some of these bills that we're also focusing on, hopefully in our next bill, is when MDMA gets approved by the FDA, it still needs to be rescheduled by the DEA. And even after it gets rescheduled by the DEA, there's about, I think, 22 states that don't automatically adopt the DEA scheduling. So those states will have to take affirmative action, including Florida. Florida is one of those states. They'll have to take affirmative action to, to reschedule MDMA once it's approved and once it's rescheduled by the DEA. So making sure that's a speedy process. So we're trying to put together bills where making that maybe more automatic or requiring that they move within a certain amount of days to reschedule. Because we, what we don't want to happen is MDMA gets approved, DEA reschedules, and now all of a sudden Florida still has it as a Schedule 1, and it takes you know 18 months for them to get it rescheduled. And meanwhile, we have a huge veteran population in Florida that could be benefit, benefited by these compounds. So we want to make sure that we're prepared once MDMA gets approved and rescheduled at a federal level. We want to make sure that the state of Florida is ready to reschedule from a, at a state level. Oh, wow. That, Anna, that's a, an added complication we do not have here, thankfully. That, I didn't know that. That's, I assumed that once it became approved as a medicine, it gets rescheduled automatically everywhere. Uh, no, it, it's not even automatic at a federal level. The, the DEA has a certain amount of days where they, they, they likely will reschedule, but there's still a possibility even that the DEA doesn't reschedule. Very, very low probability. But if it gets approved by the FDA, the DEA will likely schedule within re reschedule within 60 days. But and I know MAPS is very aware of this. They're, they have initiatives to kind of look at the states that don't automatically adopt that rescheduling. And MAPS is well aware of this. It, it will certainly be an additional hurdle that they'll need to overcome. And is there a risk that the rescheduling can be rejected by different states? 
Yeah, there's there's certainly always that risk. It's I don't think there would be any precedent for that. I could be wrong on that. More likely, there's possibilities that they put additional regulations on top of it. So maybe they reschedule MDMA, but the state requires has some of its own requirements as it relates. So we see that in like the telehealth space. So we have a federal law, the Ryan Hate Act, that kind of regulates telemedicine with controlled substances that have been approved, like ketamine. And so you have the Ryan Hate Act, but then you have states that also have their own regulations around prescribing controlled substances through telehealth. And some of those states are more restrictive than what the federal law is. So I think we'll probably see those states reschedule. I think the question is, how long will it take them? And number two, what, what type of regulations will they put around it? And just a bit more about the telemedicine health with ketamine, something we obviously don't have in the UK. So what is it like in the US? Yeah, so, you know, the general process that it, it, it goes is that, well, first off, what made this all possible was COVID. And the Ryan Hate Act kind of basically said you cannot, it's put it simply, like, you, you can't do telemedicine with controlled substances. You need, like, a physical visit first. You can't just do it straight, go straight to telemedicine. But then with COVID, you know, people didn't want to see a doctor in person, right? So they opened up the idea of telemedicine, and that really is was the impetus for these ketamine telehealth companies to start opening up their companies. And so the, the general process of what we have now is you set up an appointment, you talk to a doctor through telehealth, they prescribe you a lozenge, the lozenge gets delivered to your home. Some, some of the companies provide, you know, a therapist on the computer while you're doing it. Some of them just give you instructions on how to do it. So yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's not really IV or IM. It's, it's with a lozenge, um, because that's how they could consume it at home on their own. And so a lot of the debate around there is number one, whether people are getting sufficient support, taking it in their home, whether that's safe. I know I did a at home ketamine session and I will tell you, I've, you know, stairs at my house and I was, I did it upstairs in my bedroom and, you know, I did not want to walk downstairs for an hour or two after I was, I was definitely a little woozy. So, you know, I think there, there's a little bit of danger there, but also, you know, how much there's this big debate that people think that, you know, there's not enough support with these ketamine telehealth companies. You know, we talked about how important integration is. And on the flip side, what they're doing is they're providing access to people that couldn't afford going into a clinic and spending, you know, $500 per session. With telehealth, there's less, less overhead. So, you know, some of these companies are as low as like $50 per session. Mm. But is there then the potential risk of over-prescribing to people with a lower income going via this access route instead? Is that something, a concern that's been raised? Yeah, there's certainly, I think there's, ketamine, unlike a lot of the other psychedelic compounds, does have addictive nature. You know, you don't really hear of people being addicted to psilocybin. You know, it's not not highly addictive, but ketamine does have a somewhat addictive profile, but most of, I think, where it's being abused is really on like the black market, people snorting it, you know, at a club or at a festival or whatever they're doing, because you could get it for a lot cheaper. I mean, if, if you're really just trying to get high and get addicted, you're probably just going to buy it on the, on the black market. You're not going to spend all the money getting it prescribed to you. So I think the real risk on the addiction side is, is in the black market, which is thriving. I live down here in South Florida, Miami, there's plenty of illegal ketamine use going on. So I think it's very careful. We have to be very careful about educating the public about the difference in, you know, using it in a therapeutic setting versus abusing 
the compound. But also, you know, these most of these telehealth companies, they have their own, you know, they monitor who they're prescribing to and make sure no one's getting too many lozenges. There's also the Ryan Hate Act, which I mentioned, the federal law, which there was exemption for that during COVID. That exemption was going away. But what they, they're doing now is creating a 30-day window. So you could get a telemedicine virtual visit, you get ketamine, a 30-day prescription, but after that, you need an in-person visit. So there are certain safeguards that are being put in place, but there's certainly also some risk there with respect to people, you know, growing some sort of an addiction. Yeah, and having accidents, like you say, about the stairs and not, you know, not being particularly safe and not maybe in a safe environment and supported, you know, it does sound not far from ideal for some people. Absolutely. So, I mean, I think it's on these companies to be responsible in how they do it. And But but look, thus far, there's, there's been thousands. I mean, you look at companies like New Life, they've done thousands of prescriptions and they're showing tremendous results. They they do a very good job of kind of keeping track of their data. We're, we're very close with uh, JP and Damien, who are the founders of New Life. And, you know, they're doing incredible work and getting great results. And I've heard very few, if any, adverse events. Um, certainly there's been people that have had not great experiences or have complained about the service, but I haven't heard anything like fatal or anything like that. And when you talk about, you know, tens of thousands of people receiving ketamine telemedicine and, you know, no one, you know, all it takes is one, unfortunately, right? So we, we still got to be careful. But thus far, I think for the most part, it's been it's been done in a relatively safe manner. And you talk about responsibility. So kind of leading on from responsibility, um, me and Joe are really interested to hear some of your social equity initiatives that you've started, both in the cannabis space and also whether you've also initiated any within the psychedelic space. Yeah, well, so, I mean, in the in the cannabis space, we've represented dozens of social equity applicants. So at my law firm, we do a lot of uh, application drafting, getting getting licenses. And we've had a huge initiative at the law firm to help social equity uh, clients get it. I will tell you in the cannabis space, I don't think there's anyone that will tell you that the social equity initiatives have been a success throughout the States. They've been an enormous failure. And I've been relatively vocal about this, although you have to be careful about being vocal on these issues because sometimes people don't, you know, quite see eye to eye and, and, you know, it's obviously triggering for some people, but, you know, across, across the, you talk to some of the minority groups, you talk to the non-minority groups, really no one is happy with how these social equity initiatives have been rolled out in these states. It's really ser- not serving social equity, uh, the way they're structured. And so I think there's a lot to be learned from the mistakes we've made in cannabis. And hopefully we see a lot of that. I think the social equity policy issues are very different in psychedelics compared to cannabis. So cannabis it was really the issue was that so many marginalized communities were incarcerated with cannabis use. And so it's about, you know, kind of giving those marginalized communities an opportunity to operate in the industry and also getting some of those criminal charges expunged. In the psychedelic space, they're, you know, it's kind of the opposite. The the minorities and marginalized communities have actually not had nearly the access to these compounds as some of the more wealthy communities. And there really hasn't been a lot of criminality. There's not a lot of charges. You know, it's much more common for people to be arrested for cannabis possession and use than it is for, you know, psilocybin possession use. Usually if you're getting a charge for psilocybin, it's probably because they were, you know, kind of raiding you for cannabis and they found some psilocybin or DMT or whatever it might be. So there's actually a relatively low crime rate on the psychedelic side. So different policy issues. So on the social equity side, you're really 
hearing more talk around like the indigenous communities and reciprocity and things of that nature. So, you know, I think it's important that, you know, kind of when we talk about social equity and cannabis, we understand there's different policy things going on compared to psychedelics. And I also think it's very important that both sides are very, very open to understanding one another's position. I think both sides have some blame to pass here in the last MAPS conference. Uh, you probably heard there was a protest with some of the indigenous communities. They protested the closing, saying that they, they've made various arguments. But essentially, you know, the, a lot, some of the indigenous advocates are not happy with what's happening at a biotech level with some of these synthetic drugs being developed. But my perspective is simply, you know, we need to respect the indigenous communities. We should not take any of their medicines off their land. We shouldn't steal any of their protocols. If we do, we should pay them for it, right? Similarly, I think the indigenous communities need to respect that some of these biotech companies are showing a lot of efficacy for what I believe are the people, the, the people that are most vulnerable in society, which are people that are suffering from very serious conditions. So I think the biotech companies are trying to do very good in this world, although they sometimes get painted as, as the monsters in this narrative. So I think both sides need to respect one another, ideally work with one another, although in some respects, you know, I've heard indigenous communities say, hey, we just want to be left alone. We don't want to, we're not going to tell you our protocols. We're not going to work with you, but don't, this is our sacred medicine, so don't mess with it. So I think both sides need to kind of stay in their lanes, work with one another if they're open to working with one another, but just respect each each other's perspectives and be open to understanding, you know, where they're coming from. Yeah. So the decriminalized nature movement in the States has been very active, haven't they? That's my understanding. Yes. So yeah, I early on in my advocacy work, I got to know Charles and Larry pretty good. Those are the founders of Decrim Nature. They've done an incredible job raising awareness. I mean, they have a huge community of people. They've spread the word on a lot of stuff. And there's stuff in the beginning, I was kind of on my own journey, figuring out like, where do I fall on these policy issues? And so I talked to them a lot and, and I appreciate, they really educated me a lot on, on different issues, but I also found myself disagreeing on some of their policy perspectives, which I think is healthy. Hopefully they respect that, that not everyone is going to agree with their approach. And I also encourage a lot of people since they have so many people that are behind this decrim nature. They have different chapters in different states. I really encourage people to peel back the onion and really understand the implications of some of the policy things that they're pushing. Because sometimes when some, once you start on the surface, it sounds great, decriminalize, beautiful. Let's get better access and whatnot. Once you start peeling back the onion, there are other issues at play that need to be considered. And I, I just don't think the broader population has the full understanding of the, the policy issues that are at tension with the decrim movement. Are you happy to touch on some of those issues? Sure. I mean, you know, decriminalization is about, you know, what they really push is grow, gather, share. No commercial framework. And I don't want to talk on their behalf, and I haven't talked to them in a long time. They may have changed their perspective on this, but they're, they're not really focused on the regulated framework. And in many respects, they've openly talk badly about the regulated framework. They think that we should just be able to grow gifts, gather as soon as you put a for-profit thing before you get the government involved, like that's when everything goes to hell. So they kind of are kind of almost anti-capitalistic, like let's just people let people grow, gather, gift. The reality is, is 
I don't grow my own bananas and I don't want to grow my own mushrooms. So if you just grow, gather, gift, you're really not going to get the access you need. You need commercial enterprises. I want to know that I can go to a location. I could buy mushrooms from a company that is licensed by the state. So I know that they're regulated, that it's manufactured with certain standards, that it has, this is very important, the labeling on it that is required. So I know the dosage and I know everything I'm getting. It's one of the biggest issues in the black market. And number four, if I'm working with a facilitator, that they have had some sort of training and they're a legitimate facilitator. If it's just strictly relegated to the black market and it's not black market, but just straight up decriminalized, there's no regulations, nothing regulating the production, the labeling, the credentials for, for facilitators. In my opinion, I think that creates a somewhat dangerous environment. And I also, one of the things that we differed a little bit on when I was drafting my Florida bill is, you know, there's certain states that are not liberal, like I mentioned, such as Florida. So we got to take a different approach. We can't just say everyone should decrimp. Florida would never go for that. Never. So what my goal is in Florida is to take baby steps. If I could get this into the hands of people with end-of-life depression, that's it. Just them. No one else gets access, but at least I could get it to them. Or my other option is no one gets access. I would prefer that the end-of-life people get access. And I don't want to speak on behalf of decrim nature, but they weren't very supportive of that approach. They think it's either decrim, we can't leave out the marginalized communities. If we are, then no one should get, get access to this medicine. I just think that's unrealistic. I think if you could start small, get it to end of life patients, broaden it out to more indications, prove that that's safe, then eventually we will be able to get to decriminalization and legalization to get broader access as well. So I just don't think it's a one or other. I think there's so many different issues. And, and just to touch on another point, one of the big challenges in Oregon right now is this, this balancing and, and the industry in general, you have to balance um, access versus safety, right? Like the more money you spend on safety, the more safe it is, but the less access you have. And I don't think we could abandon one or the other. And I think in many respects, what Oregon, you know, they're, they're really... It's challenging because the cost is high in Oregon. It's a couple thousand dollars for these sessions. And so a lot of the decisions that they're starting to make are are strictly looking at access, not on safety. And I think it's very, very challenging and important that the people that are advocating for broader access, cheaper therapy, I think I just want them to be open-minded that like, we also need to make sure this is safe. Right. So and the people who are advocating for safety and want all these guardrails and all these other things need to understand we also need broad access. So once again, I think it's it's these what my goal is on the advocacy side is allow these groups to be open minded and listen to one another, because right now in the industry, I think the biggest challenge is people are really digging their feet in the in the sand on their particular position and not being open to understanding other people's opinions. Yeah, which is such a shame, isn't it? Because we have so much work to do and there's so many people who desperately need these medicines. Yeah, and so much to learn from the different perspectives, trying to bring in like a balanced view of medicalised access, decriminalised and potentially legal frameworks as well, and then also the potential for for grow at home as well and trying to see the benefits, potential risks of all these, these different approaches. Yeah. I mean, I'm as a lawyer, like it's my job to kind of figure out what all the different risks are. If I'm drafting a contract, the, the magic in drafting a contract is think of all the different ways this could go wrong and try to account for it in that contract. So 
you know, as a lawyer, you're always trying to think of the different ways. And I think it's important, like, to also understand, like, I came into this industry strictly from a mental health perspective. I was pretty ignorant with respect to the history of psychedelics and indigenous use. So, you know, I thought I was coming in with a, with a great heart. I want to help people with mental health indications. But I also admitted I, I was ignorant. And that's why I spent a, a good amount of time talking with Carlos and Larry to educate me on the history and the different policy reasons behind it. And I've grown to learn a tremendous amount of it, but it's important for, for me to be open to understanding like where they're coming from. But I also do think it's important for them to understand like we're not bad people because we want to help people with me- like that. That's our focus. Like my main focus is, is getting these in the hands of people with mental and behavioral health. Now we need to do that with an understanding of the history of these compounds and we need to respect different groups, religious use or sacred medicine. But I think just both sides just need to be a little bit more open-minded to one another. And is the end of life access coming in Florida? Well, end of life is an interesting concept just in the US. So we have a federal law that's the Right to Try Act that is supposed to get people access to medicines that are not approved, such as psilocybin, but are in phase two trials, such as psilocybin. But the process in doing that for the right to try makes it almost impossible for end-of-life patients to access it. Now, you also have all states. A lot of states have adopted their own right to try act. And in those states, it's also very hard. So there's currently a a lawsuit going on. I think the attorney's name is uh, Catherine Tucker. I think she's the the lead on that that case. But they're basically suing the government that the right to try is not actually providing access so, you know, that lawsuit will kind of also affect what's going on in Florida. So there's a lot of kind of moving pieces. I, I don't think anything in Florida is going to be changed anytime soon for end of life patients. But I think the, the point of that example was we're trying to get small wins. If we get small wins in a conservative state like Florida, I think that's tremendous. I think trying to go for the whole shebang, you're just going to end up getting nothing. You know, we're, we're just not Oregon or California or Colorado. In conservative states, you need to take a little bit of a different approach. So right now we're just trying to take baby steps. And so watching Oregon then, what would you be keeping your eye out for, you know, from a lawyer's perspective? Yeah, well, it's, you know, it's been a tough rollout for Oregon from a lawyer's perspective and an investor's (laughs) perspective. We looked at a lot of companies in Oregon. We've not invested in anything in the Oregon market. They're really having trouble getting capital into the market. There's been a lot of people who have applied for production licenses, but there haven't been that many service center licenses. So what that means is there's going to be an oversupply of this product which means the pricing is going to go down. And a lot of these producers, I think, are just going to go out of business. So the service center, we need more of them. Right now, Like I think 70% of the municipalities in Oregon have banned service center. Service centers are where it's to be delivered. It's their version of clinics. And so I think we need more, more municipalities in Oregon to remove those bans so that we could have more service centers. I need think Oregon needs to find a way where it's less costly for these service centers to operate. There's currently, you know, pretty high fees to operate as a service center. And I, what I also find incredibly interesting in Oregon is the flexibility on what that service center could look like. It could look like a retreat. It could look like any number, you know, an overnight retreat. It could look kind of like a ketamine clinic. They've even put regulations in place for lower dose. So it could look almost like a coffee shop, but the coffee shop would need to kind of monitor how long people are there. And, you know, even at low dosage, they're requiring a certain amount of facilitators and a certain amount of time at the location. So I I think it's going to be fascinating to see the different models because they really 
have kept it relatively flexible in Oregon. So I'm looking very closely to see how that all shakes out. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're all looking at Oregon. And what about Colorado? So Colorado, very similar to Oregon, except they're called uh, healing centers, not service centers. There's also an aspect of the Colorado law that I've been trying to understand, you know, kind of understand how it's going to work out. They have an aspect, like a decrim aspect of it, where it's, uh, you don't need to work under this regulated framework and get a license through the state if like you're using it for as a shaman or, or whatever. So you could kind of skip all the red tape at a state level and operate with less red tape, but there's conditions on that. If you're operating in that kind of gray market vibe, you, you can't market, you can't have a website, you know, there's certain, you can't charge for the medicine, which I think is a no change change. Because when you get psych, psychedelic therapy, the medicine doesn't really get charged. It's the, the session that you're getting charged for. So I think on the surface, that sounds great. But I think my same concerns I had when I talked about just a fully decriminalized framework pertain to that. I'm not sure what the incentive would be for people to operate in the legal framework in Colorado if they could essentially do the same thing with way lower costs and be unregulated. And the only condition is they can't charge for the psilocybin, which doesn't matter because you don't really charge for the psilocybin. And they can't market, but that hasn't been well-defined either. For example, like we own a bunch of media assets. Like I could write an article on a you know, someone operating in that space and that's marketing for them, nothing's stopping me from doing something like that. So they haven't quite defined what that totally means. So that's one of the things I'm, I'm looking at pretty closely in Colorado, but the regulated framework that they've come up with is, is relatively similar to what they're doing in Oregon. Now, Dustin, we're kind of coming to the near the end, sort of running out of time, but I know that you have links with the UK and you're, you know, a legal expert. What would you advise that we do here in the UK to change our laws? Because they are massively hindering research, Schedule 1, but also, you know, we have no, it doesn't look like there's any sort of move to decriminalize, to make it, make psychedelics a medicine. So have you any sort of thoughts about how we change things here? Yeah, well, it's interesting because there's so much great research coming out of the UK. You know, Beckley Foundation has done incredible work with Imperial College of London. The team at Imperial College of London has done fantastic work. One of their team members is actually on our team. We've invested in Awaken, who's out in the UK. They're doing incredible work. They've licensed a lot of the Dr. David Nutt's work out of Imperial College of London. So there's all this incredible research coming out. And then we have incredible organizations like you guys that are doing incredible work as well. And, you know, you guys are known nationally, internationally. I mean, you know, everyone knows who you guys are doing and the work you're doing. It's super important. So it then, then on the other hand, it's so highly regulated in the UK and it, it kind of just doesn't make sense when you're having all this incredible research. And, you know, I'm not nearly as familiar with UK laws and the different mechanisms to get things rescheduled out there compared to like the US, but I think you guys, the, the key, I, I think in all this legal reform is the research. If even for the decriminalization bills, the groups that are anti-biotech, even in those bills, the preambles usually state some of the research that's happening at an FDA level, right? Psilocybin has gotten breakthrough therapy. MDMA has gotten breakthrough therapy. These are the results. This is why we should decriminalize or this is why we should legalize. So, so even in the decrim and non-medical uses, they're still citing 
to the tremendous potential of these compounds. So I just think regardless of what market you're in, what country you're in, I think the research hopefully should speak for itself. And so just keep keep working on the research, keep coming out with incredible results, and eventually, hopefully, the, re- the regulations follow. That's what we can do, yeah. Joe. Research, education <laughs> to break that stigma. That's, that's what we care about, drug science. Yeah. All evidence-based. Yeah, absolutely. And the evidence is is gathering momentum. It really is. Some of the data from the trials are fantastic. What we need, I think, in the UK is more government funding for the research as well. We really haven't had, had, had very little of that. And I think that's where you're doing better than us. Your NIMH, you have, you have better, much better funding for psychedelic research. Absolutely. Well, I will say that the NIA, the NHS or whatever it is out there has funded some of the AWAKEN research around ketamine for AUD. So you guys do have some funding coming out. But yeah, the U.S. has there was even just the other day, there's a there's an appropriation bill at the federal level trying to allocate funds. And it just passed the Senate committee, just approved it and moved it to the floor. So there's all sorts of federal legislation in the U.S. trying to get more funding towards the research. So hopefully the U.K. government will get behind that as well. Maybe next time you're over in the U.K., Dustin, we'll see if we can arrange for you to talk to somebody in government <laughs> to explain. Love to. <laughs> that would be really good. Absolutely. Yeah, we actually, when we were, we were in the UK uh, about like eight months ago, and we actually came to a drug science meeting, and we had that exact discussion about bringing some of the US people over, some of the people leading some of the reform out there, and having them talk with some of the government officials out there. So yeah, we're, we're very open to that concept. Great. Well, we'll try and get that organized, won't we, Hannah? Yes. <laughs> well, honestly, Dustin, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for taking so much time out of your day. So we've covered a lot, a lot of... of we really have, a lot. Yeah, and, and thank you guys for having me on. I mean, and the work you guys are doing is tremendous. Like I said, you know, you're known internationally. So just understand... Little guys like me here in Fort Lauderdale are watching what you guys are doing and and we admire it and we want to support it any way we can. So really appreciate all the work you guys are doing. Oh, thank you. Oh, well, that's lovely. Thank you very much, Dustin. And very best of luck with you. And we will be looking at Florida to see what is happening there. And we know that you'll be, you are the man behind it, which is great. I appreciate that. Hopefully I could get some good stuff done. Oh yeah. Yeah, I have no doubt. Brilliant. Thank you very much. You have a great day.